I wasn't going to say anything about this, but then just with, with what they were talking about and uh, with our, uh, our current challenges with our venue at Arcadia, I thought I might just go ahead and mention this so that everybody is, is kept in the loop as, as uh, much as possible. Uh, it's not just that we're always looking for m- more helpers, quote, downstairs for children's ministry, and that would be helpful and important and, and good. Um, we also recognize that we just have a physical space challenge now. The church has been growing. It's not only been growing upstairs, but it's especially been growing downstairs. And so well, we physically run out of room quite often uh, downstairs. Um, Memorial Presbyterian still, <clears throat> they lease us this building and this building only. Everything from the courtyard over is still theirs. On uh, Sunday morning, we would love to be able to expand over into there. But of course, um, most of you recognize that we also have some parking challenges here as well. People are parking pretty much all over this entire area code in order to be able to come to church here. And I got to tell you something. Frankly, every Sunday morning, I know, I'm frank, I speak frankly. It, it drives me, you guys remind me of that all the time. Tweets, emails, texts, anyway, I digress. Uh, every Sunday morning I stand out there and it, and it just amazes me that people are parking three blocks away in order to, to come here. And I have to assume that that's only the draw of, of the Word of God and the Gospel of, of Jesus Christ. But nevertheless, God has been blessing us and we're growing. And so we know that we also have a space problem. So I want you to know that we've been looking. There is a group of people that has been working very hard, lots of hours behind the scenes to try to find uh, a, a, a more permanent type space. We have one year left on our lease here. I suppose we could renew here, but, but it doesn't take away some of the physical challenges that we have. And so there may be a move in our, in our future. Um, we're, we're still not sure, but there's lots of people working on this, including the lead team over Big R Redemption. They're also heavily involved in this as well. So I, I tell you that just to let you know that, that we are looking and we understand the challenges and we know we've got um, some issues. They're good issues because they're due to growth and not um, shrinkage. Uh, so that's, that's a good thing. Uh, But if you could be praying about that, that would be really helpful to us. If you could just be praying about our future and what we're going to do for space and and the physical challenges that we have, I really, really appreciate it. Um, We are in Romans chapter 12, and and, and let me pray first, and then we'll get into uh, today's message uh, that Lori uh, read for us and and gave us the text for. Uh, God, we do recognize that you are sovereign, uh, that you've given us promises, Uh, that you're faithful to us, and that you have tremendous character, that by the power of Christ and your Holy Spirit, you are giving to us. And so we thank you for that. We we declare our complete and utter dependence upon you. And, And even now, as I begin to try to unpack this challenging but exciting passage at the end of Romans 12, I recognize that I can't do it, that it's only through your power, your wisdom, Uh, and your spirit that this can be done. And so again, I just pray that you'd move me out of the way and at the same time you would open the hearts and the minds and the ears and the eyes of everybody, every one of us in here today so that we might hear your word proclaimed and taught and that we might apply it to our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been in Romans 12 for quite some time. Romans 12, as you know, marks a, a, the, a new section and the last section of the book of Romans, the last major section. Chapters 12 through 16 are what some people would call the praxis of Romans. In other words, the first 11 chapters of Romans is all of the theology, it's all of the doctrine, and then Paul shifts 
at the beginning of chapter 12, and he says, therefore, and that's a signal that lets us know, therefore, in light of all of this theology and doctrine that I've been teaching you about God, you are to live this way. And right out of the gate, his thesis statement in chapter 12, which lasts throughout the rest of this letter, is that we are to live sacrificially, we are to live transformed lives by the renewing of our minds, and we are to live with genuine love. Those are, I guess, the three major pillars that you would build the rest of this uh, of this letter on is sacrificial living it, it, it's our act of worship it's all of life is all for jesus the gospel uh, enters every corner and crevice of our lives nothing is untouched by the gospel we're going to have renewed thinking and and, and a transformed life and we're going to love in a genuine way and then he begins to unpack all the ways in which we love in a genuine way and today's passage and next week's passage and the passage after that are still within this context of what genuine love is. And it's interesting because, because the genuine love so far that Paul has been talking about, I think has produced in us over the last several weeks quite a number of moments when we've had, you know, some really nice, warm, fuzzy feelings. It's been, it's been the kind of things that we, we look at and we, we nod our heads and we say, yes, yes, that's love and we can do that and that's good and we should be all about that. But then today, we begin to start talking about how genuine love also has as one of its characteristics the submission to others, submission to to God, submission to everything but ourselves. That that love is completely outward-focused even when you don't feel like it, even when it doesn't make sense, even when it doesn't seem to be pragmatic, that it's completely outward-looking, and that again, I would repeat to you, that death is at the center of love. And you're going to start to see that in these next several messages. Death is literally at the center of love. We need to die to ourselves in order to to love the way Paul uh, calls us to do it. And so let me reread the verses that we're going to look at. We looked primarily at 15 and 16 last week. And so I'll read 14 and then 17 through 21. This is going to be the crux of what we'll look at today. Paul writes, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. And then verse 17, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought as to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. I don't know about you, but that sounds a little passive-aggressive to me, and we will be unpacking that, okay? Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Here's the big idea today. This is what Paul is calling us to. We are to demonstrate genuine love to everyone who opposes us. We're to demonstrate genuine love to all of those who oppose us, those who would be not only our adversaries, but even our enemies, those people that we're not just bothered by, but that we really don't like and don't want to be around. And, and here's what I would ask you to do this morning as you go through this message. Right out of the gate, I just know human nature, and I know how I am as well. Some of you right now are thinking, oh, I wish so-and-so were here to hear this. They really need to hear this. Well, they're not here because the Holy Spirit has them somewhere else. The Holy Spirit does, however, have you here. 
And you and I really need to hear this message. And so here's what I would challenge you with. Get a picture in your mind of the face of that one person that you're in conflict right now with, that you don't like, that you consider not just an adversary but an enemy, somebody who is oppressing you or persecuting you or, do, or singing against you or, 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 or offending you. That's the picture of the person you should have in your head right now and you should be listening to what Paul says about how we're supposed to treat those people. And we all have those people in our lives. It's just a matter of fact. And I admit that possibly more than any other place in his letters, this is the place where Paul sets the bar the highest in his calling for us to actually live out the gospel in in our lives. This is a very high call. Robert Candlish writes this, These verses are simultaneously a very holy calling and a very awful calling. And that is the truth. And again, I just want to remind you, Uh, chapter 12 and beyond just continues to have Sermon on the Mount shadows. I mean, it's as though Paul was there at the Sermon on the Mount taking notes. Let me read to you uh, one of the passages from the Sermon on the Mount and just see if this doesn't sound familiar. This is now Jesus teaching in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says, You have heard heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends his rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your, brother, your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So while you and I may not find it natural to live like this, what Paul is calling us to, what he, what he does call us to should not surprise anyone. There's nothing new here. And in fact, uh, this passage that we're going to look at has so many Old Testament uh, quotes and references and allusions that I, I decided not to even bring them up because there were so many of them there. We've got, the, we've got the Pentateuch, we've got the prophets, and we've got wisdom literature packed into this little Romans passage here, as well as the Sermon on the Mount. So nothing new here. Now, one more thing by way of introduction. I know there's a long introduction, but one more thing by way of introduction. I want you to understand, there are no yeah buts or what ifs to this passage. Because I know some of you right now, you're already going, yeah, but, or what if. There are no yeah buts or what ifs to this passage. Uh, Most of you have no idea who this is, but there was a comedian like decades ago named W.C. Fields, famous comedian, Somebody once caught him, caught him because he wasn't a very reverent man. They caught him reading the Bible and they said, what are you doing reading the Bible? And he said, I'm looking for loopholes. <laughs> there are no loopholes here, my brothers and sisters. I want you to understand, no loopholes. So Paul starts in verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless those who offend you. Bless your enemies. Bless them and do not curse them. So you can't curse them. You can't retaliate against them. You can't seek revenge. 
you know, openly. Are you a master of the under the breath curse? My brothers and sisters. Come on, give it to me right now. That's right. Yeah. I am so good at that. Uh, Yeah, yeah. Facial management, jerk. Paul is saying, look at that, I pulled my mic off even. All right. Paul is saying, no, not even that. You, you are not even allowed to do that. And it's interesting, it's so like Paul to do this. It's not just that he tells us you can't curse anybody, but he takes it a step further. He does this all the time. He tells us what not to do, but then he goes and he tells us what we are supposed to do. In typical gospel fashion, he says, don't curse them, but you're also to pray, and bless, uh, pray for and bless your enemies. So who are you currently in conflict with? Who are you mad at? Who are you bitter and resentful toward? Who are you holding a grudge against? Paul says no cursing or retaliation, but also you need to start praying for them and you need to figure out a way to bless them. Yikes. Luke 6 Jesus says this, bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. I just love Jesus' teaching. Well, here you go. This is Jesus' teaching right here. How do y'all like that? That's what he tells us to do. And I know it's hard, but by the power of the gospel, we can not only do this, but we're called to do this. Uh, There's this guy named Stephen in the book of Acts. He was part of the early church in Jerusalem. He was one of the early leaders and they even made him a deacon. They, they promoted him to deacon, and that was really cool. Stephen preached one sermon in his entire ministry career. It was his first and his last sermon. They killed him after his first sermon, okay? Kind of, I know, the way some of you feel here at times, but uh, it, they killed him, and, and, and it was a great sermon. It was gospel-centered, and it was filled with, it was a wonderful sermon. But as they were killing him, I want you to hear Stephen's response to them taking him outside of the city and stoning him. But they, those who had listened to Stephen's sermon, cried out in a loud voice, and they stopped their ears and rushed at him. There's no video of this, but I just see them getting so angry and to the point where they can't take listening to Stephen anymore. They literally, it says they stopped their ears and they rushed toward him. I can't hear you, Stephen! And they just ran at him. It it must have been kind of a half-funny scenario. But they're really mad. They're rushing toward him because they want to kill him. And then they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Who's Saul? He eventually becomes Paul. Saul was not a Christian at this time. He was there urging them on at this point. And as they were stoning Stephen, Stephen called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. So even in death, I mean, some of us, it's just somebody saying something mean about us. Or maybe it's not even that. They just made a mean face at us. And boy, we're just ready to go to battle with them. Stephen was killed, and he's saying, God, don't hold their sin against them. He he submitted himself even to this process. And Saul, who eventually became Paul, was so impressed with how Stephen reacted and and what Stephen said in the midst of his own execution that later on in the book of of Acts, in, in chapter 26, after Paul has become a Christian, he was so impressed by what Stephen said and did that he quotes Stephen directly. He says, this is what happened when they stoned Stephen. He said, don't hold their sin against you. And then 
Paul goes on in verse 17. He says, repay no one evil for evil. I think it's interesting that at the end of verse 16, uh, Paul says, do not be wise in your own sight. I don't think there's any disconnect between being wise in your own sight and the desire to repay evil for evil. You and I have the tendency, when we want to go at somebody who's harmed us with evil, we want to return evil because we think that might be the wisest thing to do. We think we have all the information that gives us the right to do that. Paul says, don't be wise in your own sight. Do not repay evil for evil. And again, this is nothing new. He writes this in 1 Thessalonians 5. Peter writes it in 1 Peter chapter 3. David Augsburger, in in one of his books, describes it this way. He says, listen, when people are repaying evil for evil, he says what it's like is it's like a a negative downward spiral of uh, of reactivity. A negative downward spiral of reactivity. You do this, I do that. You do this, I do that. And it just keeps going down and down and down. And Augsburger says that what Paul is saying here, and he's right, is that somebody has to break that cycle of negative downward spiral of reactivity. Somebody's going to have to eat the offense and then start the upward spiral of positive behavior, of blessing and, and, and praying for people. It's that a lot of people, their favorite scene from the movie The Untouchables Okay, so Sean Connery and Kevin Costner are in the Catholic Church at Chicago, in Chicago and they're trying to figure out how they're going to defeat Al Capone. And, and Sean Connery says to, to Kevin Costner, you don't understand what we have to do. You don't understand what it's like here. If they bring a knife to a fight, you've got to bring a gun. If they send one of yours to the hospital, we've got to send one of theirs to the morgue. That's the Chicago way. And everybody's like, yeah, Chicago way. That's not the gospel way, though. Paul would be sitting there going, "Um, I beg to differ in this case. And I know Al's a bad guy. It's Robert De Niro, even worse, okay? I know he's a bad guy, but I have a different way to handle this. He says, rather give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. Literally what that means is that in every situation, we're supposed to do what's right. In every situation we're in, we're supposed to do what's right. And then verse 18, as far as it depends on you. And now we're going, ah, good. Now Paul is tipping his hand to the way I can get out of this, okay, as far as it depends on me. Is he tipping his hand here? Is Paul recognizing that there's only so much that you and I can do? And yes, for the most part, that is true. It's true that you and I cannot make people nice. How many times have you tried to just make somebody nice? It just doesn't work. So he says, as far as it depends on you. But also, what Paul is doing here is he's giving us a call that we are never to compromise gospel principles and witness at the cost of keeping peace. That's what he's saying here. You and I, in the midst of this, are never to compromise the gospel principles and witness that God has given us. So, in other words, you and I, in order to keep peace, we will never sin in order to keep peace. That's the call. We also will never ignore sin in order to keep peace. How many times have we ignored sin thinking that will keep the peace? And then it just gets worse and worse and worse. Ignoring sin is not the way that we're supposed to go either. We would never create a new gospel in order to keep the peace. Let's see, the gospel that we have really doesn't seem to be working pragmatically. Maybe if we add something, maybe if I mix a little Oprah into Jesus, that will help. So we create a new gospel. We're not supposed to do that. We do not create an injustice in order to try to keep peace. And we don't lower the bar on what God's Word calls us to do in order to keep the peace. 
And, and you and I need to remember that, that this is going to be, there's going to be some tension here. There's going to be a line to observe and to guard and also to walk. And we need to understand that from its earliest days, so we're going back 2,000 years, from the earliest days, the gospel has been both a comfort and an offense. It's been a comfort to God's people and it's been an offense to God's people. It's been a, it's been a comfort to God's people and it's been a, an offense to those who are not God's people as well. It's been both of those things simultaneously. Chuck Colson once made this point in regard to wh- uh, why it is so hard so often for some Christians to live in ways that Scripture teaches rather than, than, than giving in to how the world wants us to live. And he goes back to ancient Greece and Plato to make this point. He says that, word, that Greek word ethos, from which we get the, our word ethics, he says literally the Greek word uh, ethos means a stall or hiding place where one finds security. A stall or hiding place where one finds security. In other words, ethos is dependable and unmovable. It never changes. But then mores, the word mores, from which we get the word morals, that word literally means constantly changing. This is why morals can be situational or relative or what's currently acceptable in our culture. So here you go. Ethics are what ought to be. Morals are what is. And the gospel calls us to what has always been and what ought to be, not what is. The gospel calls us to what has always been and what ought to be, not to just what is. And that's why the gospel is comforting to the, those of us who know Christ. It's comforting because it's stable, it's never, it's never failing, it's constant grace and truth, and it, and it never changes. But that's also why it's so offensive. Because every time the world comes along, and in the world's wisdom, they say, oh, I hear the gospel, but no, this is now truth. Quit quit living in the past. This is now truth. The gospel says, nope, we're going to push back, and we're going to say this is what has always been, and this is what ought to be. So the gospel offends worldly wisdom, but it's also the only true wisdom. So as far as it depends on us, we keep the the peace by living the good news of Jesus Christ and never compromising those gospel principles. Instead, Paul says, leave it to the wrath of God. Leave it literally means to make room for or set aside the rightful place for the wrath of God. So let's take a minute and talk about this concept. What does it mean to not avenge, not seek revenge, but rather to make room for the rightful place of God's judgment and intervention? I think there's three characteristics that we need. The first thing is that we have to admit that we're not God. Now, I recognize that the vast majority of us are never going to say out loud, I'm God, the way Alec Baldwin did in that movie Malice, because that's just shocking for somebody to say something like that. But that does not mean that in, our, in the quiet of our own dark hearts and, and through our actions that we don't kind of think that we're at least as good as God or smarter than God or wiser than God. It's why we make so many dumb decisions. It's because we think we're God. We'd never say it out loud, but we behave like it. So we have to admit we're not God. Second of all, we have to accept, and this is part of admitting that we're not God, but we have to accept that we don't know everything. And I know that's really hard for some of us. We don't know everything. But we're pretty sure we do know everything. And that's why we take action. That's why we act. That's why we don't wait around. So this takes humility. And it also means that you and I have to be comfortable with something called smallness. 
which again is hard in our world. The world's narrative is, is that we're to live big lives and lives of renown and lives of status and, and lives of dominance and lives of pride. But God comes along and in his gospel wisdom, he tells us you and I are supposed to live lives of wisdom and submission and quiet confidence and that, and that we're to leave a small footprint, but we're to give big credit to the kingdom of God. That's how we're supposed to live. So we admit that we're not God. We admit that we don't know everything. And then third, it means that we have to be patient. We have to be patient. We have to, we have to be willing to wait and to endure. And this means making room for God to act in his last day when that comes and waiting for that. In other words, this process here, this methodology that Paul is talking about here isn't necessarily always going to work the way you want it to. If you're looking for a pragmatic methodology for how you're supposed to always win a conflict, this may not always work well for you. But you have to readjust how you're looking at this. You have to look at this with a gospel lens. And you need to remember to leave it to God. And, and again, this is, not a new, this is not a new concept. Listen to the prophet Nahum. The first part of his book is all about this. Listen to this. This is not new. Paul was entrenched in this way of thinking. This is an oracle concerning Nineveh. Now, this is interesting because Nineveh was a city that at one time the Jews hated them. Jerusalem hated Nineveh. And they wanted to seek revenge against Nineveh. They wanted, if they had that kind of technology, they wanted a nuclear bomb to go off in Nineveh. They hated Nineveh. And Nahum comes along and says, I have an oracle about that. And he says this, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. And the Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. So the first thing Nahum says is be patient. Wait on God. He's slow to anger, but he's great in power. And then he says this. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. In other words, be patient. God is sovereign. God is all-powerful. And then he writes, the mountains quake before him, the hills melt, the earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. In other words, God is all-powerful. So be patient, God is sovereign, and God is all-powerful. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. In other words, God's judgment is perfect. So wait for God, be patient. He is is all-powerful. He's in charge. He's sovereign, and His judgment is perfect. And then he wraps it up by saying, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in Him. You see, the Gospel is both comforting and offensive. That, That passage is comforting and offensive, depending on where you're sitting and where you're standing. So wait on God. In fact, Paul's argument is that we're to substitute for vengeance... We're actually, we're not, it's not just that we don't take vengeance. We're to substitute for vengeance going out and doing good to our enemies. He says in verse 20, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And, and again, I go back to two weeks ago when Myers preached and he said, 
You have to be in proximity and community with these people. This demands proximity and community. This demands that you are in proximity and community even with your adversaries and your enemies. You know how we like to run from those people that we don't like and who offend us. Paul's saying you've got to be in community with them. And then he says by doing this, it's going to pour burning coals on their head. And like I said, that sounds a little passive aggressive. What is going on here? And this has been taught a number of different ways. And I just want to let you know, these burning coals are not for the harm of the enemy. Some of us think, yeah, we're going to get them with those burning coals. This is not for the harm of the enemy. If that were true, why is Paul also commanding us to feed him and make sure that uh, our enemy is not thirsty? Why would he do that? Is this to manipulate and deceive our enemy? Is that what we're supposed to do? See, I got a little beef with those who teach this passage as saying that's how you're going to harm your enemy. Be nice to them. I have a problem with thinking that we're going to make our enemies suffer by doing this because what it amounts to is taking goodness and kindness and using them as weapons of destruction. You know, be nice to your enemy because it's going to kick their butt when you do. And then we seem to feel better about that. Did I somehow miss that acknowledgement and that admonition in the Sermon on the Mount? I think that's a little out of character for Jesus. The principle here is that our kindness is going to allow for an environment where where repentance can be introduced. We're not going to... People don't tend to repent if you repay their evil with evil. They just ratchet it up. They just give you more evil. So what we're doing is that we're at least helping to set the context where repentance might be introduced. Many scholars believe that what Paul is referring to here is an ancient Egyptian practice where... In an Egyptian town, if there's a conflict between two people and somebody has offended somebody else, the person who's been offended treats the other person with great kindness and goodness and tries to bless their enemy to the point that very often what would happen is the one who committed the original offense would then repent. And the idea of the burning coals was that it was a sign of their repentance. They would take a big pan that was designed to put on their head and they would put burning coals on their head and then they would go out into the public square, into, into, the, into the town square, and they would walk around with the burning coals on their head as a sign and a symbol to let everybody in the community know that I'm repenting for what I did to Mort or Joe or whoever it is. So this is what Paul's doing. He's saying, listen, kindness can lead to repentance. Isn't that what he says earlier, by the way, in Romans, that God's kindness leads to repentance? That's the idea here. And then he wraps it up, this little section, by saying, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Essentially, we have to recognize, this is the third time that Paul has said this in these eight verses. He said it essentially in verse 14, again in 17, and now in 21. One scholar writes this, like a heap of burning coals on your head, kindness is nearly impossible to withstand. And I want you to look at kind of the summary of these verses, sort of a, these verses in totality. Um, Paul gives us essentially two don'ts and two do's. Here are the don'ts. Don't speak badly of others. Don't retaliate against others. And then the two do's are this. Do good to others and do withstand and conquer evil with goodness. So don't speak badly. Don't retaliate. Do good and do withstand and conquer evil with goodness. Now, what would be the one indispensable characteristic of being able to do these things? It actually amounts to trust. Trust in God. 
I want you to hold that thought in abeyance because I'm going to talk about a few other things and then we're going to end with this idea of trusting God because it's right there in the middle of this passage. First thing I want to mention is this idea of effectiveness. I already mentioned it a little bit earlier about the idea of this is a methodology to somehow win or something. Uh, It's true that this won't always work, but you would be surprised at how often it really does work, how often people really do respond uh, to your goodness in the face of their evil by by repenting or at least getting on the same page with you. Um, And I bring up social science research here, and I know I'm For some of you, I'm treading on thin ice when I do that. But I just want to tell you, uh, when I was going through my master's program at Arizona State University and I was taking interpersonal conflict classes, all of the research that we read, which had been developed for decades and decades in in the um, uh, 1900s by these researchers, all ended with the same conclusion. When there's interpersonal conflict, you should never try to overcome evil with evil. You should always try to overcome evil with good. And I would look at that, and there was one other Christian guy in my cohort of 15 students working on our master's. One other Christian guy, Alan, he works at Whitworth University now. He's a Ph.D. in communication. He teaches up there. And he and I would go and we'd read these things, and then we'd write in the margins. Uh, without even looking at each other, we'd write Romans 17, uh, 12, 17 through 21. And we would just laugh. We'd look at these guys, these, these scholars who would be patting themselves on the back. We discovered that it's not good to try to overcome evil with evil, that you should overcome evil with good. And we're going, ah, Paul knew this 2,000 years ago, and he didn't have to do a study either to be able to do this. And I know some of you are like, why don't you just tell us what God says? What's with all this social science stuff? What's wrong with letting you know that human proclivity leans into this. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with saying, hey, look, even people who observe this stuff acknowledge that God is right. I think that's a, that's a good thing. F.F. F. Bruce says it this way. The best way to get rid of an enemy is to make him a friend. And so our most powerful weapon against evil is actually good. To respond uh, to evil with more evil doesn't help. It only adds to the amount of evil that's going on. And this is exactly what Jesus did. This is the gospel. Paul is not calling us to do anything that Jesus didn't already do. Jesus' response to evil was to go to the cross, not kick butt. Jesus wasn't on the cross going, I'm taking names and numbers and you better watch out. That's not what he was doing. Jesus did the greatest good in the face of the greatest evil being perpetrated on him. It's what First Peter, I'm sorry, it's what Peter says in First Peter chapter 2. When Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So this is who we are in Christ. If, if you're in the gospel, if you're in Christ, this is what we are called to. John Perkins was a, an African-American pastor in, in, in Mississippi in the 60s and 70s. And, and one night in 1970, he was mercilessly beaten by highway patrol officers and sheriff's deputies. And he was beaten for one reason, because he was black. It's the only reason they beat him. Later, as he was recovering in the hospital and he was praying about what happened to him, he came to this conclusion. Jesus' enemies hated him, but Jesus forgave them. God would not let me escape this truth. God showed me that however unjustly I had been treated in my bitterness and hatred, I was just as sinful as those men who had beaten me. 
and I needed forgiveness for my bitterness, and I knew I must forgive them. It's Ephesians chapter 4. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. So a big part of this, this, a big part of this idea of overcoming evil with good is to forgive. That is a huge part of it. We need to start forgiving or the lack of forgiving will just eat us alive. It's the old saying, not forgiving someone is like taking poison and hoping that they die. It's the old saying. I mentioned David Augsburger earlier. He, he wrote a book in 1985 that's become a classic book. It's, it's called The Freedom of Forgiveness. And in that book, uh, he talked a lot about forgiveness. And he said one of the problems with people wanting to seek justice for when they have been wronged is that they have a misunderstanding of what justice is. He says it's not that justice is bad. It's not that we shouldn't seek justice. But the idea behind seeking justice for a lot of people is that they think that somehow that's going to also make them whole. If they can just achieve justice, if they can just get back at the person who offended them or did something to them, somehow we're going to be made whole and we're going to feel like it felt before the offense even happened. And he cites some some interesting research. He talks about how um, uh, researchers followed around families of people who had been murdered. And, And you've seen this on television shows. You know, families, somebody in their family gets murdered and so then then they get a suspect and then they start to press in on the prosecutor and, 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 the, and the, uh, uh, the attorney. And they, they want the attorney to get a conviction. The prosecutor to get a conviction. And then if they get a conviction, they want the death penalty. And they, and they do it under the guise of justice. They want justice. And so they get, the, they get the, the, the conviction and then they get the death penalty. And then afterwards they go and they talk to the family. And it's interesting what the family members say in every single case. I'm glad we got what we wanted. I'm glad that justice was served, but I got to tell you something. I don't, I don't feel like I've been made whole. I don't feel any better about this situation. People are expecting justice to do what it cannot do. It's not that justice is bad, but justice has to be paired with forgiving. You and I have to be able to forgive. That's where we can be made whole by Christ in us. Vengeance doesn't work. We must forgive. So like Stephen, like John Perkins, like Jesus, we are to repay evil with good, not more evil. And I know some of you are like, okay, but how? How do we do this? A couple quick things. First of all, you and I need to be aware of very unhelpful practices in our lives that keep us from this ungospel-like behavior that, that, that make us want to repay evil for evil. And there's three things that I would say under this rubric here. First of all, be aware of hanging out with people who only help you to nurture your bitterness and resentment. Beware of hanging out with people who will only help you to nurture your bitterness and resentment. If you're constantly having coffee or hanging out with somebody and you're saying, I'm a victim, I'm a victim, I'm a victim, and they're going, yeah, you are a victim. I don't know how healthy that is. That's not very helpful. Second of all, beware of reading and embracing stuff that would counter this gospel teaching too. And it's out there all over the place. I don't get mad. I get even. Be careful of that. And then finally, be aware of your own brooding. Are you somebody that broods about this stuff, that ruminates on this, that just is walking around in a constant state of anger, talking to yourself about how everybody's against you and you're a victim and never a villain? 
Is it true that everybody in the world is always a victim and never a villain? We have to adjust our thinking. And then the second thing is this, and we mentioned it earlier. We see this right in the passage. It's right there in verse 19, in the middle of this passage. And it's the same thing that Scripture calls us to in all things. It's the same thing we call you to every single Sunday morning. Trust God. Our hope is not in us, and it's not in the things of this world. Our hope is in the character, the faithfulness, the promises, and the sovereignty of God through His Son, Jesus Christ. We must trust God. Like I said, it's right there in, in the middle of the passage, verse 19. Give Him the honored and proper place. Give Him the room. Give Him the prerogative. Submit to His plan and his, in His timing. And understand, this is exactly what Jesus did when He went to the cross. He's in the garden that night when He's betrayed and He's praying to the Father and He's saying, Father, please, if there's some other way, can we please discuss that other way right now and figure that out? But in the same breath, he says, but not my will, your will. And then he went with great joy, Hebrews tells us. It was for the joy that was laid before him. He went with great joy to the cross. Possibly the greatest act of love that you and I can engage in is to just simply trust God. And then all other love flows from there. It's funny that the Jewish dream at the time that Jesus came was that the Messiah would seek vengeance against their enemies, the Romans. And then Jesus came. And what did Jesus do? Jesus served the Romans. He ministered to the Romans. He taught the Romans. And he died for the Romans. He did the exact opposite. He overcame the evil of Rome with his own goodness. I I almost hesitate to bring this up, but I know that there are people who are thinking in their minds, okay, but what about this? What about ISIS? Is that going to work with ISIS, Frank? I mean, you got this grand theory here, and I know Jesus, and man, that's really cool. What about ISIS? One of the problems I have with Scripture, oh, I have a problem with Scripture, that's interesting, are the man-made chapter divisions. We're going to talk a lot about that next week in, in Romans 13, 1 through 7, where it talks about the authority that God has given the government. Part of leaving it to the wrath of God is, is entrusting him, Paul tells us in chapter 13, with the governing authorities. And I know you got red flags going up already. Our government stinks. Government stinks. Government's awful. We'll talk about that next week. But that's what we do with a situation like ISIS. We are leaving it to God and his authorities. Um, in evangelical churches, we don't often quote uh, former President Jimmy Carter, but I will right now. <laughs> Jimmy Carter once said this, As an individual Christian, my responsibility is to show love to the world. As the president, my responsibility is to execute justice. And we'll talk more about that next week. I want you to remember as you go today, though, Jesus went to the cross for us, fully trusting the Father. And because Jesus went to the cross for us, fully trusting the Father, we can trust him in all things, even in this area of overcoming evil with with good. Let me pray. God, we thank you for this message, even though it's really difficult, really hard to, to do. And yet in the midst of this, we know it's right because it's coming from you and your word and your spirit. And so, God, we just... 
We just pray and ask that you would fill us with your spirit so that we could live out this gospel principle. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.